0: Hi, I'm Arun George and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express News Show. In today's episode, we're looking at how NRI voters may be allowed to cast their votes from abroad, possibly as early as 2021. But first, we're looking at the questions raised by a controversial law that has been passed by Uttar Pradesh. Madhya Pradesh was the first to propose one But Uttar Pradesh became the first state to pass an ordinance against what it said were forced conversions for marriage. While the government maintains that this law is only against forced religious conversions, it is seen as a law targeting what Hindu groups term as love jihad. Love jihad is said to be a conspiracy funded from abroad in which men of non Hindu religions marry Hindu women merely to convert them. In Uttar Pradesh, the law was passed despite the police finding no evidence of such a campaign while probing multiple cases recently. The law, named as Uttar Pradesh Vidhi Virud, Samparivartan Pratished Adhyayesh, translates into prohibition of unlawful religious conversion. It proposes multiple things. It says that a marriage will be declared null and void if the sole intention of the marriage is to change a girl's religion. Those found guilty of conversion done through misrepresentation, force, undue influence, coercion, allurement or by any fraudulent means could face jail terms from 1 to 5 years. If the woman is a minor or from a scheduled caste or scheduled tribe, then an accused could receive a jail term between 3 to 10 years. And if the conversion takes place on a mass scale, then those found guilty face between 3 to 10 years in jail. Given the interest shown by multiple BJP-ruled states in such a law, we could soon see versions of this in different states. Meanwhile, in Uttar Pradesh, at least one person has been arrested so far under this law and multiple cases filed under it. The law is likely to be challenged in higher courts. But what would the objections be to such a law? To discuss this and more, we're now talking with Apurva Vishwanath, who covers law for the Indian Express and has been speaking with legal experts regarding this law. Apoorva, there are already anti-conversion laws in states that prohibit conversion through the offering of money and other incentives. How does this law that has been passed by Uttar Pradesh stand out?
1: So, the Uttar Pradesh ordinance targets not just conversions generally, but also conversion for the sake of marriage so apart from regular conversions a special category of conversions solely for the purpose of marriage that's how the act defines it that is also being prohibited so it goes one step further from your regular anti-conversion laws that pretty much every state has so this focuses just solely on marriage and when i say it focuses only on marriage for marriages it assumes that every conversion is unlawful unless you've had prior permission from the government. So in other anti-conversion laws, the accepted norm would be that once a conversion has taken place, if there is a cause for action, then you would look into whether the conversion was lawful or not. In this law, this Uttar Pradesh's new ordinance, it is assumed that a conversion for marriage is unlawful, Unless you followed the procedure that it establishes by going to the district magistrate one month before getting prior permission from the state.
0: So, um, how does our constitution look at marriage currently? And what's the problem with how this law looks at it?
1: Uh, the right to marry, the right to choose a partner or the right to freely propagate one's religion or even the right to convert is fundamental right. So, it is a very individual right and the court has recognized this time and again. Most recently, it was in 2018 in the Hadiah case that the Supreme Court reiterated that freedom to choose a partner of one's own is a fundamental right. But this particular law is problematic because it targets the heart of this fundamental right. It says that... Um, Even when a conversion, even when a religious conversion is done through the consent of the party involved, the onus is of the partner to show that the conversion was not forced upon the person. So it doesn't recognize or or in a sense, it delegitimizes the agency of the person who is converting, saying that your willingness or non-willingness is not as important. We want to know from your partner whether he forced you into converting or not. And another troubling aspect is that it recognizes that parents of the person converting, siblings, or any other person related by blood or through marriage can raise objections to such a conversion for marriage. So it brings in this aspect of third parties, be it family or even the state, because you need permission from the district magistrate prior to the conversion. So it brings in this aspect of either state intruding into your marriage or your family intruding into your marriage when the constitution recognizes this to be a highly individualistic freedom. So
0: what are the most problematic aspects of the law as it stands?
1: The most important ones at least or the most striking ones are that it shifts this burden of proof against the partner of the person who was converting. So that is hugely problematic because it assumes that the partner caused the conversion and that it was done in bad faith. So that is one major problem with this because then it falls upon the partner to prove that it is not his or her decision, but it was a consensual decision taken by the person who was converting. Second, it defines allurement in very sweeping terms. So, the Act says that any conversion where um, the person was allured or any allurement was offered would be unlawful. But when you look at the definition of allurement, the Act gives a very, very broad, sweeping definition. So, it includes any gift, material or otherwise. So, if you were given like a copy of Bhagavad Gita, that could be allurement. It says divine pleasure or otherwise. So, if you are promised that you know that you will get divine pleasure if you convert, or promised, or, or as it at least told in the sermon that you know there will be divine pleasure or otherwise if you convert, that is considered allurement. It also says that a promise of a better lifestyle would be allurement. Suppose uh, even future events where, uh, let's say, admission to a particular school because it is a religious institution. So that could be allurement. When any phrase is defined so widely, it becomes very subjective and each case will have to be looked at individually by the judge. So such subjective assessment is always problematic. That's another issue with the law itself. And of course, the most important is it just disregards the agency of the person converting. Um, Let's say a person who is converting comes and says, I did it on my own volition that wouldn't be enough for the police and they will necessarily have to talk to other people and look at the circumstances of the conversion. So disregarding the agency of the person here, especially of women, is a big problem area. And if you do a plain reading of the Act, another huge problem area is that there is a different jail term specified for men in the Act. So um, while describing jail term, it does say that if a man tries to convert a woman, minor, or a person belonging to Scheduled caste or Tribe, this minimum sentence would be two years and that can extend up to 10 years. Whereas regularly, the sentence under this act is actually a minimum of one year, which can be extended up to five years. So what you're looking at is almost double punishment based on gender. So that is again like a discriminatory aspect that legal experts are pointing out that it could be a problem area. You know,
0: we already have something called the Special Marriage Act that exists for interfaith marriages. So why is this law seen as targeting interfaith marriages?
1: So that's a very uh, important distinction to be drawn between marriages under the Special Marriage Act and marriages done under a religious law. So if you look at how marriages under Special Marriage Act happen, both the parties get to retain their religious identities and only subsequent events like succession, inheritance, those aspects will be governed by a secular law. But the wedding itself is not a religious event. It happens in a court of law where you go sign certain documents and you're pronounced man and wife. But if you look at marriages that are being discussed under this law, the uh, UP prohibition of unlawful conversion of religion ordinance, here what we are talking about is essentially marriages that happen through religious ceremonies. One of the main reasons for that is, let's say, an interfaith couple wants to get married under the Special Marriage Act. The process is a very ordaining, cumbersome process you require one month's notice to the district magistrate, that is going to be a matter of public record, wherein objections can be entertained by the district magistrate. So these things happen in a special marriage act. For interfaith couples who are sort of already worried about targeting from family or the society, and a quicker alternative to that is for one of the parties to the marriage to convert to a particular faith and have a religious wedding. So that is a quicker way of having the wedding. That's sort of the route that most interfaith couples take when they want to avoid the one-month mandatory waiting period under the Special Marriage Act. So this law, the new law, specifically says that this will not apply if you are marrying under the Special Marriage Act. But if you want to have a religious wedding by converting, then this law kicks in. That's an important distinction between the two laws.
0: So does this then effectively make a couple getting married in an interfaith wedding then more prone to action of some kind?
1: Absolutely. So uh, what happens is now if a couple wants to get married according to a religious wedding, even then they will have to go through the bureaucratic rigmarole where they will have to make an application, wait, where their families are given a right to object to it. So in a sense, this has become more troubling than the procedure under the Special Marriage Act. So that's why um, experts are pointing out that this targets interfaith marriages. It makes interfaith marriages very difficult uh, to take place.
0: So the issue of love jihad was first tackled in the Hadia case where the investigating agencies couldn't find evidence of such a campaign. Where an internationally funded campaign is being run to just convert Hindu women into other religions just before this law was passed, even though Uttar Pradesh police failed to find evidence of any such campaign in a set of cases that they probed. What are the issues that crop up with passing a law to target something, uh, you know, or a campaign that you really haven't been able to prove in some senses?
1: So if you look at the law itself, it doesn't say um, that this is to tackle love jihad anywhere. But the statements that are being made that this law will somehow curb or prohibit love jihad cases. It's very problematic because the law itself cannot define what is love jihad. So here you had the NIA saying that Hadia's case did not qualify as love jihad after the Supreme Court's intervention. So um, how do you define such an activity? And if you can't define a particular activity how do you then criminalize it so here what we're essentially looking at is that you have a concept in mind you criminalize it and then you're hoping that certain activities will be qualified as love jihad and it will come under the ambit of this law so you're really legislating in the dark hoping that once the legislation has kicked in once there is awareness about such an activity then cases will somehow magically come but if you look at the legislative intent or or whether this was a valid theory to actually bring in a law to curb it, there is no evidence such a thing exists in the country.
0: Before we get to the next segment, I just wanted your quick attention. One of the big reasons people say that they like this show is because it helps them understand the news better. It provides them with the context they need to see the bigger picture. And there's perhaps no other place that does this better than the Indian Express's explained section. We on three things refer to the section regularly, and it helps us make this show. If you're a regular reader of the newspaper, you know how useful the explain section can be, especially when you're looking for in-depth analysis by the right experts. You can log into indianexpress.com/explained and access their coverage 24/7. Explained by the Indian Express, when news that matters is explained by experts who know the subject. Now back to the show. If you're a registered voter in India, you're most likely to have voted using an electronic voting machine. But there is an alternate method for people to cast their vote. The Postal Ballot The Election Commission has now proposed allowing non-resident Indians or NRIs to cast their vote using this mechanism. Ritika Chopra, who reports on the Election Commission for the Indian Express, joins us now to explain how it might work and its potential impact. Ritika says that as it stands, the facility of using a postal ballot is restricted to very specific groups.
2: There are a set of voters who can actually exercise their franchise or cast their vote through post, through ordinary post, and not cast it in person. Currently, all voters, except for the restricted set of voters that I spoke about, have to cast their vote in person. Under the restricted set of voters who can actually avail the facility of postal voting are members of the armed forces like the Army, Navy, Air Force, members of the armed state police force who are serving outside a state, government employees posted outside India, their spouses, all of them can actually, obviously, if they're posted outside the place of their residence, they can't vote in person. So these people can actually use the facility of postal voting to cast their vote for an assembly election or a Lok Sabha election. Very recently, in the last one, one and a half years, the Election Commission has tried to sort of expand this category of voters, as in voters who can avail the facility of postal voting. To this, they have added a new category called absentee voters. These are essentially people who are employed in central services and are unable to cast their vote due to their service conditions. These are f- offices of the Delhi Metro Rail Corporation and the railways and media persons and they are to be notified as absentee voters. Another category that the commission added was uh, senior citizens above the age of 80. So these are the sort of list of people who can actually use the facility of postal voting to record their vote for an election. But how does this system work? In postal voting what happens is that the returning officers actually supposed to print ballot papers This is usually done within 24 hours of the last date of nomination withdrawal. And these are dispatched to the service voters and the other categories of voters that I spoke about just now. These are dispatched to them. These voters then mark their preference. They are supposed to send this back via ordinary post, along with a self-declaration form, which is duly attested by a designated officer. And they're supposed to send this back and they should reach the returning officer, on the day of counting, just before the counting begins.
0: In the recent US elections, we saw a record number of votes being cast through this postal ballot. In Bihar, there was a proposal to increase the number of people who could cast their votes in this same manner. Um, But in that case, it didn't really go through as planned or as proposed. What are the challenges that come in when you have postal ballots?
2: So what happened in the case of Bihar is that the election commission was trying to extend this uh, facility to senior citizens above the age of 65. As I mentioned earlier, that the commission has allowed senior citizens above the age of 18 to use a facility of postal votes. But the commission wanted to bring that age down to 65, given that uh, senior citizens above the age of 65 have been notified as an age group which is at risk as far as the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is concerned. They're at risk of contracting the virus. So in order to protect them, the commission wanted to bring down the age of senior citizens from 80 to 65. That didn't go through because uh, political parties had uh, objected to that proposal, saying that this wasn't discussed with us before implementation, which is why this has been put on hold for now. The challenges essentially of postal voting is of votes actually reaching the returning officer on time. One, because, uh, like I said, any postal vote that reaches the returning officer after the counting process has begun. uh, The counting process actually begins at 8 a.m. And the first half an hour of counting, the returning officer will only count the postal votes. But anything that reaches after 8 a.m. will not be counted. So... Time constraint is definitely an issue with postal votes. I mean, time is of the essence in this case. And of course, there are issues like if a postal ballot is marked incorrectly, then that could be rejected as an invalid postal ballot. So, these are essentially the two challenges.
0: A bit of history about NRI seeking to vote in Indian elections. Ritika says there were multiple petitions filed years ago in courts by NRI seeking the right to cast their vote abroad. As it stands, they are required to come in to vote in person, which comes at a high cost. The Election Commission responded to these petitions by setting up a committee in 2014 to probe how that could be implemented.
2: This committee had made a bunch of recommendations. In fact, it considered three main options. One was voting by post. The other was voting at an Indian mission abroad. And the third was online voting. This committee ruled out the online polling option because it felt it could compromise the secrecy of voting. It also shot down the proposal to vote at an Indian mission abroad because maybe they, they felt that the Indian mission abroad may not have the resources to organize the polling process. It finally eventually recommended two things. One was proxy voting and second was the option of postal ballot.
0: Proxy voting is another means of voting in which a voter can give another person the authority to cast a vote on their behalf. Think of it like a power of attorney. However, it's currently only available to voters in the defence forces. The election commission accepted the committee's recommendation and asked the law ministry to extend these facilities to NRI voters.
2: The government in turn ended up accepting one recommendation which was a recommendation on proxy voting. In 2017, the cabinet passed the proposal. There was an amendment bill that was brought to parliament in 2018. That bill was passed by Lok Sabha. It was awaiting the Rajya Sabha's nod when finally the elections, 2019 elections, happened. That bill lapsed with the dissolution of the 16th Lok Sabha.
0: If the law allowing NRIs to vote through a proxy ballot is to be passed by parliament, it now has to be cleared by the cabinet, the Lok Sabha and the Rajya Sabha. But the election commissions made a fresh suggestion about how NRIs can be allowed to cast their vote. Ritika explains why this suggestion
2: is different. What the commission did last week was that it wrote again to the law ministry, this time pushing for the second proposal that let's extend the facility of postal voting to NRI voters. What's interesting is that unlike the proxy voting proposal, If the government were to accept the postal ballot proposal, it doesn't really have to amend the Representation of the People Act 1950. It can, just as how um, the government accepted the commission's proposal to extend postal voting to senior citizens and absentee voters, it can do the same for NRIs just by amending the conduct of election rules, which means effectively that the government will not have to go to parliament to get this approved or passed. It can do this through a Gazette notification. So how would
0: postal ballots work for NRIs?
2: In the last few years, as far as postal voting is concerned, this is something I should have mentioned earlier, that earlier postal ballots or other ballot papers were sent by the returning officer by post and received by post. What was introduced recently was basically the returning officer, the commission allowed the returning officer to transmit the ballot paper electronically. So, this was called the Electronically Transmitted Postal Ballot System or EPBS. Basically, you send across the postal ballot electronically one way and you receive it via ordinary post. So this um, has been implemented for service voters and has been successful. So the the election commission in its recent proposal to the government said that since ETPBS has been successfully implemented for service voters, we are uh, technically administratively ready to also extend this to voters abroad. In fact, we can do it as early as uh, assembly elections next year. As you know, the states of Assam, West Bengal Kerala, Kandernado and Potuciary will be going to vote next year. From what we gather, as per the uh, Commission's proposal, any NRI who is interested in voting through a postal ballot will actually have to inform the returning officer through a form. And this information should reach the returning officer at least five days before the notification of the election. Once the RO has been intimated, the RO will then dispatch the ballot paper electronically to the voter the voter sitting abroad will download the ballot paper, mark her preference on the printout of his ballot paper, and then send it back along with the declaration. If you remember, I'd early mentioned that even today, for service voters and other voters entitled to cast a vote through postal voting, have to actually send across a declaration, which is duly attested, along with that postal ballot. So even the NRI voters would have to do that. And in order to get that self-declaration form attested, there will probably be an officer designated in an Indian mission or at an Indian embassy who will attest this declaration form. What we don't know at this moment is whether the NRI voter would just have to send this back on her own or will she have to drop this off, say, at an Indian embassy at a high commission and then maybe this would be segregated constituency-wise, and then further sent to the state chief electoral officer or to the returning officer. So we do know that this will be dispatched electronically one way to the NRI voter, but we're we're not sure about the way back. Yes, it has to come back by post, but will it have to be sent by the voter herself, or will she have to drop it off at an Indian mission, and then that would be sent by post uh, to the concerned returning officer or the chief electoral officer of the state.
0: If NRIs are allowed to vote, how big a factor could they be? Ritika says there are an estimated 1 crore non-resident Indians abroad, not all of whom are registered voters.
2: As per EC's records, there are a little over 1 lakh Indians who are registered, rather NRIs, who are registered as voters in India. So the process of voting in person, since it's seen as restrictive, is also one of the reasons why People think that NRIs don't vote. At least, the registered NRIs don't vote in larger numbers. So, of that one point, I think one lakh NRIs registered voters, about roughly twenty-five thousand had exercised their vote. Rather, they flown down to India to cast their vote in the Lok Sabha elections in twenty nineteen. The commission feels that once the facility of voting staying back in the country of a residence and participating in an Indian election, if that facility is extended to an NRI, then maybe they would feel encouraged to register. Probably that's what holding them back from registering because most of them feel that they cannot fly down just to cast their vote. But once um, this facility is actually extended to them, they will register in larger numbers. For instance, right now, of those 1.1 lakh uh, voters who are currently registered larger, I think 95% of them register in the state of Kerala alone. So maybe states which have a larger presence abroad, for instance, states like Kerala or a state like Punjab, where their community uh, are settled abroad in much larger numbers, they could probably make a difference in those assembly elections.
0: While there's this provision that's being discussed for the NRI voter, uh, why can't we consider something like this for domestic voters, like say migrant workers, in say Bihar or states where they have a large number of migrant
2: workers? So actually there is one thing that has come up recently and especially after the news of the commission approaching the law ministry for foreign allies came out. A lot of this has sort of revived the demand of extending the provision of postal ballots to migrant workers as well. So actually this year, as recently as July, there were civil rights groups which had approached the election commission on this very demand, that migrant workers, migrant laborers, you know, are often unable to cast their vote as they're away from their home state and that they should be allowed to do so. This is something I believe was actually considered by the government. Uh, This is at the time when the election commission actually made those two proposals, one on proxy voting and one on postal ballots there was a committee of, or rather a group of ministers which had considered both demands. And at that point, they also looked at whether the facility of postal voting actually should be extended first to the migrant voters and then to voters abroad. But one doesn't really know what finally came of those committee deliberations. So that is a proposal that has been discussed time and again, but nothing concrete has come of it.
0: You were listening to The Three Things by The Indian Express. Today's show was written and produced by me, Arun George. And as always, was edited and mixed by our producer, Joshua Thomas. Before we go, here's another reminder to check out Indian Express's Explained page. You can log on to indianexpress.com forward slash explained and find in-depth analysis by the right experts. It has everything you need to know to understand the news better and see the bigger picture. If you like the show, then do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it. Share it with a friend or someone in your family. It's the best way for people to get to know about us. You can also tweet us at Express Audio and
2: write to us at podcastindianexpress.com. At